Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you have your Bibles this morning, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are ready to lend you one for the service. And if you don't have a Bible at all, they're going to give you a Bible that you can keep. Certainly would love for you to have God's Word, and even if you need to use one of our Sunday morning Bibles, uh, you're welcome to keep it if you don't have one. So just lift up your hand, they'll see your hand, and they'll give you a Bible to follow along with. Has anyone ever had a, an issue in their life balancing work and family? Has anyone ever had a problem... Um, being overly competitive to a fault. <laughs> Anybody? No, I said to a fault. Right? Um, workaholics in the crowd? Any workaholics? Has there been any of you ever struggle with laziness? So some of you have somehow eradicated your old sin natures. You no, longer, you no longer have issues. This text uh, certainly covers a whole lot more than answers to those questions, but it certainly addresses those questions. And for uh, just our memory's sake, we're going to reread this short passage from the Bible and then uh, seek to work our way through what we began last week in this chapter. So if you'll begin with me here in verse number four, we'll can begin reading. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. We're going to take the remainder of our time this morning just to unpack the truth that's here and seek to apply it in um, reasonable ways to my life and then to, God willing, your lives as folks here at Grace. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we discovered that comfort is hard to come by when we live in a world full of oppressors and oppression. And Today, I would like to discuss with you, preach, apply, the reality that sometimes rest is hard to come by because of competition in our world and intense work ethic, unbalanced approach to work into competition. How many of you have seen in the last couple of years at least one video on social media of parents whose children are playing a sport and the parents get in a fight in the stands? I watched one recently, it was in Columbus, Ohio, it was a AAU basketball event and, and uh, one kid chucked another kid hit him pretty hard and the dad of the kid who got hit jumped out of the stands and went to go attack the kid who hit his kid and so who's going to be next to respond 
right? It's going to be the dad of the other kid. And all of a sudden, it becomes about the parents rather than the kid. I think these kids were 11. So, I mean, it's safe to say we don't live in a very competitive society, right? I mean, Americanism is competition, the way it's described by many. And certainly within the dominion mandate, there's room for endless achieving and exploration. But we need to remember, we dwell in a fallen world. And without the help of God, man is rendered powerless to ultimately control his passion to compete and to work and to find the spiritual balance in their approach to both. Notice what the text says here. I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of rivalry. In Solomon's life, when he was walking away from the Lord, he achieved unbalance or imbalance in his living. Looking back over his shoulder, now walking with God, he actually realized that he had pursued, and remember, these are the pursuit of some pretty good things because of the dominion mandate, and because of what we learned earlier from chapter 3, that God has set eternity in the heart of every man. God did this. God has set inside of us the desire to know and the desire to achieve. Walking away from God, it's imbalanced. Walking with God, there's nothing wrong with every work and every deed being pursued, but away from God, it can be sourced in rivalry or an imbalanced passion in life to get, to get, and to be top of the food chain, so to speak. I mean, we hear this all the time in our culture. I mean, Chick-fil-A just became the number two fast, casual food chain in the United States. Wow. They passed Wendy's, right? So even the marketers in these companies they're paid handsomely to sit in meetings 60, 70 hours a week to find out how they can move up a spot in the fast food food change. Clothiers do the same thing. I mean, have you seen a commercial lately that describes a particular car company as the number one seller of mid-sized vehicles in the United States? or in the world. Ford, Chevy, Buick, GMC, it seems like you can't watch any event or story on television without the commercials being saturated with the competition in the vehicle world. I mean, I've even read recently how school districts in the state of Ohio, there's 88 counties in the state of Ohio, and the school districts are trying to climb the academic ladder and being known as the number one school district in the state of Ohio. And now there is a group of superintendents across the country, 100 top superintendents in the United States. Right? And this group is asked to come to D.C. to figure out how they can continue to be the trendsetters in the academic environments of all the counties within the United States. 
Of course, we know there's little to no competition in the political world. Uh, no one's vying for the top spot there. Uh, there's no self-promotion in the political world. We're so thankful for the balanced, reasonable, peaceful approach and the example that these folks set for us. Our culture is absolutely saturated with an imbalanced desire to work hard and to compete. It may be a surprise to some of you, but even globally, the United States was uh, recently um, placed at the top as being the hardest working country in the world. That did surprise me. And we know what technology has done to increase those work hours, right? A lot of people now are able to work remotely, and that's certainly a wonderful goal if you can do it, but remotely usually means in your home. And it's a lot easier to continue to work at home when you're at home when you should be homing at home. <laughs> right? Have you ever seen neighbors compete? Have you ever competed as a neighbor? Wow, sweetheart, did you see the shed they just built? And every morning, for some reason, when you walk down to your kitchen to get your coffee, your eyes are directed at that shed that you really want. And you've got this other thing going on with your neighbor that he doesn't know you've got going on with your neighbor, and it's a little competition going on there, and there's no way he's going to one-up you in relationship to the shed you have. So you don't even know it, but just you start to rationalize. Well, I could really use a shed like that. We could really compartmentalize our storage a little bit better, get it out of the garage, get something out of the basement, get in the shed, but in the back of your mind, there's this thing. He's got this waterfall in his backyard. I can't stand it. He put that there. I want that waterfall. I haven't been able to get one yet, and now he does the shed thing, so your focus becomes the shed, and you begin to rationalize. You know, we could really use a shed, but in the back of your mind, you're thinking, that guy's not going to do it. I'm going to get a shed, and my shed is going to be bigger than his shed. My shed's going to have windows in that shed. Right? I might even make it a three-season shed. Right? Wow, sweetheart, did you see he just tore out his driveway and put down a brand-new driveway, and he expanded the side of it so he could have a really nice half-court basketball area for their kids and mm, wow they tore out their lawn and they put in the lawn and man it even has a sprinkler system and sweetheart did you see that fence you know we have a fence but it's like chain link right do you know how hard it is to 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 weed whack a chain link fence sweetheart do you know how much money i would save if we went to a vinyl fence like theirs just in the, the plastic cord for my weed whacker. I mean, if you, and you, you, know, you get a, you actually present a database, right? And this is how much you spend a year on your plastic cord for your steel weed whacker, right? And you project that within 10 years, the fence would have paid for itself if you didn't have to buy that much plastic cord. And in, in, in your heart of hearts, really, what are we doing? I, you know, we're, we're just really coveting, but we're, we're, we're competing in a very imbalanced way. Proverbs 14.30 says, A heart of peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. 
There can be just no rest at times in our lives if we're stepping away ever so gradually from the Lord's priorities, wisdom priorities. Where do we see the first rivalry in Scripture after the fall? I would say that there's a little rivalry between Cain and Abel, wouldn't you? Further on into the history literature of the Bible, I could certainly say that there was um, a budding rivalry, an obvious rivalry between Saul and David. The fallen nature of man does not always seek to compete and complement, but just merely compete. At times you'll hear a businessman or an athlete compliment a party or a team in which they've just gone toe-to-toe with in commerce or sport, but generally Solomon would say we we live in a dog-eat-dog world. Mere fallen competition is fierce in its nature. It's exclusively selfish with little to no regard for its opponent. This world of competition can be devoid of diplomacy or courtesy. This mindset could also erupt the lava of self-promotion and self-promotion at all costs. Vivid in our memories are certain members, not all, of the U.S. women's soccer team who had reached the pinnacle of soccer victory by winning the Women's World Cup in back-to-back years. They turned this highest team and national achievement into a grossly individual accomplishment. One particular member of the U.S. women's soccer team, while celebrating in a drunken fashion in New York City, said, I deserve this. I deserve this. I deserve everything, was her quote. Proverbs does say a fool utters their whole mouth and brings their own shame. So we don't need to dwell here long on what this individual said. But the point is, at its grossest level in our fallen world, apart from God, competition and work ethic can become a very personally selfish dark thing. There's something plain and simple that Solomon is trying to tell us besides just the fierce nature of fallen competition and over-the-top individualism. He certainly has nothing against hard work. We know that from other parts we've already discussed in Ecclesiastes and we'll face it again in future passages in, in Ecclesiastes. He certainly has nothing against trying to gain a competitive edge. We've already discussed that. But mere fallen competition become exclusively out of control and, again, ruggedly individualistic with little to no regard for others. This fallen, rugged individualism is an existence that is to be deplored by any believer, let alone adorned in their own life. Again, It's individual competition that can become unbalanced. It's not even natural for an unsaved image bearer to accept this disposition or attitude. Even in our world today, there's articles written, uh, social media posts, 
that deplore the darkness of rugged individualism or the consequences of undisciplined business decision. They're, they're image bearers. And even though they don't know the Lord Jesus, just through common sense, they can see and decry an imbalance in this area. I personally, you have too, right? You've seen this rugged individualism either by way of an imbalanced work ethic or the desire to compete, destroy families. I could tell you lots of stories, and, and there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, often, in the early years of my ministry, I would uh, talk to young married couples who are struggling domestically because of the husband's desire to compete, or the wife's passion to build a small business in their home. And I think there's nothing new under the sun. We went through the same thing. When we were a young married couple, for some silly, ridiculous reason, I loved to play church softball. And I would play church softball at the expense of time with my family. For some ridiculous reason, in a church league and church softball, they decided to put the games on Saturday nights, which is typically the only day that fathers and husbands have to be with their families. And they decided not only to make it one game, but you know what? We got to have a doubleheader. So what do we do? Well, we get up Saturday if you sleep in, whatever that means. There's no such thing anymore, really. And then you do the housework, but man, you got to split about three o'clock. Why? Because you got to go there, you got to get stressed, you got to warm up, right? And, uh, we have a tendency to get to softball to warm up in a more disciplined fashion than we do church. I just said it, okay. And, and we're prepping our minds all day long, so we're consumed with this game, even while we're with our family mentally, and then physically we depart at 3 o'clock and we show back up about 9, 30, 10. And the day's gone. So I do this unwisely, Right? for the first eight years of my marriage. And then I stretch out for a ball in left field, I dive, and I take out my rotator cuff. And I go home that night, and I said, sweetheart, I think my shoulders hurt. And she said, well, good. <laughs> she said, we'll have you home for a few Saturdays. That hurt. That probably hurt more than the injury. But you know what? You know, faithful are the wounds of friends, right? It was helpful. That was the last game I ever played. And I haven't regretted it since, right? Common sense, Jimmy, right? Yeah. Dads who are addicted to competition in golf who will take almost every day off in their summers to compete with their buddies at the expense of developing the relationship with their wives and their children. Some dads who actually, for some reason, just can't stop working even on Saturdays and the Lord's Day. And wife and children begin to feel like chump change really early. 
And they don't realize till maybe a decade later that the wife and the child had solidified in their own minds what their dad loved more than them. And now they got a 10 years, a 10 year thick wall to chisel. And it takes another 10 years, if not more, if it ever can be dismantled to get back to their hearts. I've seen the desire to compete dismantled churches. It would seem like the strangest thing to you that pastors in the same community would live to have the church that's bigger than their buddy's church. But isn't that silly that that actually happens? I've seen this become the drive of even Christian universities where a president that I'm having lunch with would say, you know what, if it's the last thing I do, our enrollment will be bigger than so-and-so's enrollment. And I'm sitting there thinking, are you serious? Like, is, is that really... All I'm saying is, apart from God, the desire to work, the desire to compete becomes radically imbalanced and unfocused. And it can happen to any of us. And what does Solomon say? He says it right here in the text. Right? He said this too in the second half of verse number four. This too is short-lived. It's vanity... And it's striving after the wind. It's, it's kind of pointless. Anyone tried to play tag with the wind? Good luck. <laughs> right? But I find the, the, the grammar here in the Hebrew language very, very intimate. As we back up one more line. This imbalanced desire to labor and to compete regardless of your skill set. It's rivalry between man and his, what does it say? Neighbor. These are, the close, these are the people who live closest to you. These are the people that know you best. It's not just the people who are in with proximity of you. It does include those people. But it includes those who are together with you. It becomes striving after the wind. It becomes vanity even for those people so you might have made yourself the focus. You might have made yourself the epicenter of everyone's universe. And everyone's orbiting around your passion to work or to compete. And, and, and you, have a, you have a peanut gallery of bystanders watching you. You have an audience. And that's the audience that's just like, wow, they're nuts. And who are we anyway? So it causes those who are in proximity to you and together with you to doubt their own value. And certainly, none of us wants to remain there once we realize that we've been there. Someone has said that, you know, rivalries never die. And that can be true. In sports, some remain and some have ceased. There's always a question of what's still known as to be the biggest rivalry. And for those of you who know athletics, you know that those questions are always um, effervescing in social media. What's the big college football rivalry? What's the biggest interconference football rivalry? You know, who's the biggest rivalry? And, and really, the truth be known, there are some rivalries that existed in the 80s that no longer exist in the 21st century. And there's some that do. Solomon's point is, whether they do or whether they don't, it's all vanity and, and certainly nothing wrong with the rivalry, but let's not lose focus. 
not lose focus. Again, Solomon is speaking to the nature of rivalry itself and our fallen culture in general. There will always be competition. There will always be passion to achieve and to get. And unaffected by sin, as I said, it's good. But let's guard ourselves against it descending into the ugliest and lowest common denominator in our cultures, personally, and in our church, collectively. People compete today as if their passionate efforts will last forever, right? Especially the younger generation, which I'm now no longer a part of, apparently, right? We work hard, we strive hard, we achieve hard, we get hard because we want our legacy to last, right? And then we go back to the end of chapter 2 and we find out what? It doesn't matter how hard you work for your legacy to last. What does Solomon say? The person who comes after you can undo it in a day. Right? So that kind of brings some balance over to your personal legacy, doesn't it? Because this passion to have a legacy, whether it be spiritual, whether it be vocational, whether it be educational, be social, whatever that passion is, to leave your legacy, to leave your stamp, to leave your mark so that generations to follow you will follow you. Don't let that passion make other spiritual virtues and necessities in your life expendable, even though it might be a good passion of a good virtue. And Solomon would tell all of us imbalanced folks to get a grip. <laughs> this too is Vanity and striving after the wind. We live in a culture of going from good to great, like all the time. And sometimes this can be irrespective of other Christian virtues, as I've said. And of course, this imbalance is never biblical. And by the way, why do I have to be great? I'll just let that one sink for a little while. Why do I have to go from good to great? I'm not going to talk about that anymore because I'm still wrestling with that. I know God is great. I know his son in me is great. <laughs> I know his spirit that indwells me and instructs me in the word does his great work. Is is my destiny to be known as great or to allow my God to be known as the same? I don't know. I think I do. <laughs> Again, I've talked to pastors who have said, and I quote, no matter what it takes, I'll have a bigger church. No matter what it takes, no matter what it takes, no matter what it takes. And really, do, do we hear what we're saying? No matter what it takes? Like, really? Like, no matter what? No, 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 I didn't mean that. Well, that's eh, kind of like what you said. <laughs> you know, be careful, right? Be careful. Achieving a balance is the key to the Christian life. Again, what we pursue with passion without making other spiritual values and virtues expendable is, is most important. 
What was Paul's approach in Acts 20 to the whole church collectively? He had a passion to make sure that he had, as he gathered the Ephesian elders at the island, the little city of Miletus there uh, for that little mini Bible conference. He said, I, I wanted to make sure that you remembered that I spent in Ephesus three years, night and day, house to house, making sure that each saint there knew the whole will of God. Because understanding that is your own spiritual and physical protection as we live in a fallen world. And he tells the elders, don't forget that I taught the word of God to you within its proportion. And I applied it within its proportion. I gave as much attention to a Bible topic that the Bible gives to it. Balance. A passion with balance sourced in the word of God. Are there pastors? I think I was one of them for a while. I hope I'm always growing out of this, right? Every pastor has a favorite doctrine that they enjoy. If you sit down and ask them, well, maybe you could probably tell them what their favorite doctrine is because they always hear them talking about it. We have to be careful because what, ari what arises within local churches and then local churches within areas and lands is a fierce competition of which pastor can explicate that doctrine better than the other. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an infectious disease spiritually, even among pastor teachers. And then hours and hours, sometimes years are spent discussing this doctrine among pastors who are just trying to gain what? at the expense of shepherding their own families and their own flocks. Distracted men for sure. Anyways, maybe even in local church ministry, let's say that Brother Trevisano has the gift of mercy, and I have the gift of mercy too. And let's say that his gift is way bigger than mine. The degree of his gift. I mean, we go do hospital visits together immediately. The way the Spirit of God's empowered him, he, he walks into a room and immediately he becomes the presence in the room. And I'm, I'm naturally second fiddle to his gift, even though I have the gift of mercy. So I can sit in the background and I can pray for that visit while he ministers God's word in that visit. And let, let's say that, that, that his gift is so strong, he says, Pastor... Let, let's, I'm passionate about starting a mercy ministry in our church. And, and really, every waking moment that Rick has, he thinks about this mercy ministry. Nothing wrong with mercy ministry, right? But let's say that his passion, his disposition, the kind of person he is and, and personality is, along with the degree of his gift, you know, everyone begins to know Rick as the guy that's got the gift of mercy that wants to start a mercy ministry. And the pastor's certainly willing to take a guy who's got that kind of passion and say, go, Rick, go. And all of a sudden, Rick starts to make some decisions that aren't wise. And it makes other ministries in the church expendable because of what the pastor's given him the green light to do. And, and all of a sudden, the sheep can begin to feel like, well, the way I'm serving the Lord in the local church is chump change again, right? 
No one can do it like Rick can do it. So there can even be an imbalance even within our local church. Right? Why? Because we're fallen beings and yet God has given us this desire <laughs> to know and to do and to achieve. But it's all going to be brought back into a biblical balance, right? We can't pursue any quality thing at the expense of other quality things. Amen. And thank you for allowing me to use you without your permission. <laughs> I would only do that to a guy that says amen a lot. <laughs> Just anytime. anytime, all right. We just need to continue to maintain a wise balance in all of our efforts, regardless where we work or play. And always remember that it's our mission to glorify God by evangelizing the lost and equipping the saints with the goal of Christ's likeness, no matter where we work or we play. There's balance in that mission. So consider with me Solomon's words in verses 5 and 6 as we wrap up this morning. There's a further imbalance and dissent here to which the vicious competitor will go. Having alienated others from their lives, the unreasonable competitor is left alone to enjoy the reward from winning. And Solomon analyzes a twofold philosophy of life here that can be adopted if we're not careful. He says here in verse number five, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. So that seems like parachute out of nowhere here, but it is really tied to the thought process that Solomon has. The text tells us that the winnings, so to speak, or earnings gained from the imbalanced competitive life can be short-lived, will be short-lived, and can only be enjoyed for a while, and they typically will enjoy those earnings and winnings alone. The imbalanced person, the person who tries to, in a sinful way, overachieve with work or overachieve in play, has a tendency, remember, to ostracize those who are around them. And so now we find him here alone, folding his hand, doing what? Eating his own flesh. And what's really interesting in the Hebrew language, Solomon's not supporting cannibalism here, but that's literally what it says. He's so self-consumed, he doesn't even know it. It's gotten to the point where he doesn't even know what he doesn't know anymore. He spent all this time achieving and getting and preparing for whatever future he's defined that he's supposed to have, and yet the people around him are just now watching him as he's pursuing that life he's prepared for, just still enjoying himself. The idea is here he's not eating himself because he hates himself. He's eating himself because he actually likes the way he tastes. you right but that's how that's how Solomon had found his way of life apart from God he liked himself a lot Solomon had no self esteem issues right the fierce and balanced competitor and worker has no self esteem issues 
And some would say, well, they're quite insecure and they have self. That's why they're pursuing. Eh, the text says, well, of course, Ephesians 4 says, no man ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, right? For the believer, this is obviously no way to live. It may be the American dream. It may be what you were taught to do. But again, it's the antithesis, the opposite of biblical living. And you know what I found to be the most healthy? When I become imbalanced in work ethic or competition, the people, go to the people who are your neighbors. Remember what earlier the text said? Go to the people who are your neighbors and just ask them. Go to those who are within your proximity or to actually together with you and just say, you know what? What do you think of me? Am I out of control? Am I making my pursuit of doing this or getting this? Making other good things and good people in my life expendable? And when you go into that conversation and you ask that question, you better ask it honestly. Because I think you need to be prepared to be shocked at what they have to say about you. So husbands, you need to have this with your wives. Wives, you need to have this conversation with your husband. Parents, you need to have it with your kids. Some of you that have a tight-knit department at work, maybe you could ask that question at work. And maybe disciplers, disciplees, we can have that conversation with each other too. I think every pastor, every elder, every deacon, every leader, every member, every regular attender at Grace Church needs to have this conversation with those who are within their proximity or together. And you better be willing to listen. And don't say a word. Don't say a word. Just listen. And then go pray. I've had to do this. And it's always painful. But incredibly helpful. When you're asking by people who love you and they know you. Verse 6 gets a little bit more puzzling, not necessarily interesting. Right? He says, One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after the wind. Now, our, our Bible minds know that when the Scripture gives common sense, seek no other sense, right? when it makes simple sense. And th this, this text makes a lot of simple sense, really. And you could probably begin to already apply this. Uh, but I hope I can help you here uh, apply it most effectively. Literally, in the grammar of the Old Testament, it says this, two handfuls are not better than none if they are gained at the expense of peace. Two handfuls are not better than none if they are gained at the expense of peace. Proverbs 29.9, you can cross-reference here in the margin of your Bible. Solomon's wisdom there just simply explained that the fool lives with no peace in their lives because they live it within an imbalanced extremes. And we're going to crescendo here towards a balance of wisdom in relationship to 
competition and work. One author says it's never wise to give up on contentment and capitulate to envy and oppression. Again here, balance to life is to be understood. Ian Provan explains this. Life for the body is no more achieved through grasping with both hands than through folding them. The single handful symbolizes the way ahead. So I'll reread that real quickly. Life for the body is no more achieved through grasping with both hands than through folding them. The single handful symbolizes the way ahead. I think a New Testament context of 1 Timothy 6, 6, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Isn't that simple? Let's pursue godliness. Let's be content with what we have and don't ever let your passionate, competitive, rivalrous spirit distract you from understanding what contentment is. And make sure that you sound content as much as you sound rivalrous or competitive. Well, people know I'm content. Well, some of us, especially me, I could be a passionate guy about competition and work and let's go, 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 go. And I can see while those who work with me could say, you know what, is he really content with what he's got? Because he's always talking about go, 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 you know. So maybe I should talk a little bit more about how content I am. Because I really am. I, like, I really like my life. Right? I really like my life before I had what I have now. Amen. Right? And those of us that have been married for a long time, well, I can't say I've been married a long time. It'll be, I think, 28 years on August 10th. But you look back to those first five years and when you had the least, and wow, that was really good. That was really good. To work and to work hard is biblical. To pursue and achieve as part of the dominion mandate is certainly biblical. But at the expense of godliness and ethic, it's not. It's not. One of my favorite authors said this, it's good to have the things that money can buy as long as you don't lose the things that money can't buy. Gibson goes on to say, life is a gift, not gain. And I still think a lot of us look at it as gain and a gift. We live life to get and not to give if we're not careful. The getting is for the giving. Solomon teaches balance throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to continue to try to understand what that balance is. So Solomon would tell us, the life of striving is one that is completely anti-neighbor. You have to ask the question, who, not just what, have I left aside or behind because of my passion to achieve, to work, and to compete? We don't live our lives trying to go from good to great at the expense of others at home, neighbor, or church, and our desire is to reach them. Then work in tandem with them unto eternal purposes. 
while we work and compete and achieve. So has your competitive edge, regardless of the venue in your life, distracted you from a balanced, spirit-filled life? So again, we'll go back to the way chapter 2 ended as we close. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and to drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also have I seen that is from the hand of God. And wow, we know now within the context of chapter 4 that even this mandate at the end of chapter 2 that closes the first section of the book of Ecclesiastes is never to be done alone. Remember? We'll get into that more next week. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? And we go to chapter 3 and verse 12. And we're reminded again. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in his labor. It is a gift from God. And remember, I think we said 13 times the theme of rejoicing and joy is mentioned in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're enjoying these things, we're rejoicing while we enjoy these things, and we're doing these things with people. And then we go to the end of chapter 3, where he says in verse 22, I have seen that nothing is better than man should be happy in his activities, for that is his lot. It's been my experience personally, maybe it's been yours too, that when we're imbalanced in our work ethic or in our place of competition, that often we're not very happy, joyful people. Or at least the people around us wouldn't explain us that way. And we live a lot of our lives alone even though others are around us, they're not with us. To enjoy exactly what Solomon tells us to enjoy here. So let's keep it all in balance together. You help me, and I'll do my best to seek to help you. Amen. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for the simplicity of your word and the wisdom of Solomon as he's governed by your spirit as he writes. Help me and help our leadership, and our flock to understand what a wisdom balance of life is when it comes to the dominion mandate and the obligations that we have to live life and enjoy ministry. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.